Tonight is the second Sunday of the season of Advent, and we are picking up a text tonight, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. The reason that we're jumping into this text in this often uh, neglected epistle is because it deals with our future hope as Christians, the coming day of God in, pers- in the person of his son Jesus. And this obviously is our focus during the Advent season. It's not that we don't focus on the hope of Jesus' return throughout our lives as Christians, but it's that we, during the season of Advent, we bring a a special focus to this. We put a microscope on it or a spotlight uh, to draw out some of its implications for our lives. And we'll do that more this evening as we look at this text. We're picking up midstream in 2 Peter 3, and beginning at at the first part of this chapter, Peter is dealing with false teachers who say that um, already that Christ's return hasn't really or won't, won't happen because it hasn't happened yet. There's been some kind of delay than what they expected is the claim of the false teachers. And so they say this in verse 4 of chapter 3, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So these false teachers use this argument, the lack of his return, and, and use it to lead to a sinful and lustful life, that is, to license. We're told in verse 3 that they follow their own sinful desires, and it's quite likely that they've led others to fall astray as well, including some in the churches to whom this epistle is written. So, Second Peter is written, generally speaking, to encourage endurance, steadfastness, uh, godliness, these kinds of virtues. In chapter 1, we're told that um, God's power and promises enable us to partake of the divine nature and have rescued us from the corruption of this world and its lusts. And then we're told, in probably the best-known passage from 2 Peter, to make every effort to supplement to our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This kind of living, Peter says, will make our calling and election sure. So it's a letter that calls us to live a faithful and godly and holy life. And that same purpose of the letter becomes clear in our text in chapter 3 this evening. Uh, To the false claim that God has forgotten his promise and the subsequent moral license that occurs as a result of this, Peter reasserts the reality of God's coming and his return. In verses 8 and 9, he states a twofold reason why there has been, quote-unquote, a delay. He says, first, because God's, the eternal God's view of time is very different than a human being's view of time. So that as a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And then he says, second, it's because God is slow to anger. This is when God revealed himself in Exodus 34 to Moses as one slow to anger. That the prolonging of the return is due to his patience. So that, because he doesn't desire anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So that's how the argument of the false teachers is refuted. God is coming back. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. The day, the great day of judgment will come. And in light of this day, we're urged to live a holy life. So here's what I would say the clear teaching of this text that we're looking at tonight is. It's that knowing 
and dwelling upon and remembering the future day of Christ's coming and all that this will bring, both positively and negatively, serves to strengthen our resolve as the people of God to live a holy life in the present day. Stated differently, the hope of Christ's return reinforces our pursuit of holiness. And this is seen quite clearly in verse 14 of the text we're looking at. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is for this day of return, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We see it again in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God? So in unpacking this teaching of this text, I want us to consider two things. First, what exactly are we waiting for this great day? What does it entail? We want to explore the nature of this day. And then secondly, we want to consider how understanding this serves as a motivation for a life of holiness in the present. So first, what about this coming day? Now, it's really easy in the season of Advent to talk in vague terms about Jesus' return and to make it sound in some ways like it will be one great big surprise party, that Jesus will arrive unexpectedly and pass out party hats and kazoos to all, and so on and so forth. And as much as we'd like for this to be the case, uh, this caricature obviously cannot really be sustained in the face of the biblical texts in general, but specifically of this text in 2 Peter 3. And of course, there are elements of truth in every caricature, and even in the one I've just given. But it's grossly inaccurate as a caricature, as it is. It's not all just a party, this great day of God's return. There's a massive upheaval that happens when Jesus returns that includes two primary realities. First, the end of the current world order, the world as we know it, in some kind of cataclysmic way. And then secondly, and perhaps even more uncomfortably, the judgment of the wicked or of the ungodly. These obviously are sobering realities, so be sober with me for a moment as we look at them. Verse 7 speaks of this. This is the verse right before where we picked it up tonight saying that by God's word, the heavens and earth that now exist are are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10 gives us a similar picture, stating that on the day of the Lord, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done done on it will be exposed. The roar here is either the crackling and burning of the cosmic conflagration, or it may be a reference to the wrath of God, whose voice of judgment will reverberate throughout the earth. Those are the two best interpretations of that idea of a roar. The heavenly bodies that will be burned up and dissolved are either the sun, moon, and stars, and or the wicked angelic powers who back in those days were often seen to rule through these heavenly bodies and realities. We see the same thing again in verse 12. On this day, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So this picture of cosmic upheaval, even cosmic conflagration or fire, is a long-standing Jewish way of thinking about the day of the Lord 
and the judgment that accompanies that day. In verse 12, 2 Peter is alluding directly to the Septuagint reading from Isaiah 34, 4, which reads, all the powers of the heavens will melt. And picking up on that idea of melting or burning, of intensity of heat. Isaiah 34 as a chapter is about God's judgment of the nations. This is the God who descended on Sinai in fire, the God who filled the tabernacle with fire, the God who led the people of Israel at night by a pillar of fire. Jesus himself speaks of a time when heaven and earth will pass away, Mark 13, 31. And the day of his coming will be a time of fire and of upheaval. But it will be especially a day of judgment. Verse 7 is explicit in referring to the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. In verse 10, the picture is one of the heavens and the heavenly bodies being so destroyed or burnt up that the earth and the works done on it, that is where men and women dwell, will be exposed. If you like, it's like the shower curtain is pulled back for just a moment and everyone stands exposed. Similarly, we we read in Hebrews 4, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, that is from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In that day, the scriptures teach, many will want to hide from a moment like this, but be unable to do so. Because God will see and administer righteous judgment through his son, Jesus. The one we declare in the Nicene Creed who comes again to judge the living and the dead. And this will include the destruction of evil and all those who are aligned with evil at that day. It might be worth listening to Revelation 6. After the sixth seal is opened, these are the words which are all echoed here in 2 Peter 3. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. That's an allusion to Isaiah 34, 4. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, admittedly, these are sobering passages that we don't talk frequently about in the church, perhaps to our own fault, but they're biblical, and we do God no favors in obscuring what he makes clear in his word. Let me make clear at this moment that there's also tremendous clarity in God's word in this text and elsewhere about the objects of God's judgment on that great day, the wicked. Who are the wicked? Who are the ungodly? In this text, it's clear that these are the ones who have not repented. That's the clear implication of 2 Peter 3. The reason that God is patient verse 9 says, is because he doesn't desire anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance is essentially a turning around. 
It's saying I lay down my way of life, the way that I've determined is best and right and true. And I lay that down. I change my mind and I embrace your way, God. It's leaving our own way. It's leaving our own propensities to living in our own way and embracing God's way, embracing Jesus, Jesus as Lord and as King. It's not about being in a higher class of humanity. It's not about being stronger than your neighbor. We sang earlier, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. The clear message of the biblical word is that in order to be out of that place where judgment happens on the great and final day is to enter into repentance and faith, to turn from our own way and to embrace him and his way. Now, none of us do that perfectly by any means. Nor is that just a one-off event that happened somewhere in the past. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living that says, I constantly am seeking to turn over my own control, my, my ideas, my insights as to what is best, and to yield myself to God and to his will and to his purposes. And in so doing, we'll find ourselves clothed on that great and final day. And not naked and exposed. So those are the negative sides of this Advent hope. The world order being changed. And wickedness and evil being judged. But in verse 13 we see a very positive side. The side where the caricature really is true in many ways. Where where we read, but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens... And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This cosmic upheaval isn't producing simply destruction. But it's producing a new creation. New heavens and a new earth. Something that God has promised. Certainly in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. This is renewal. It's not simply destruction. These fires about which Peter writes may send the world back to primordial chaos for a moment, but it's only in order to bring about a new and beautiful creation in which righteousness dwells. What did Jesus teach his people to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This new heavens and new earth that we're looking forward to in the church is a place where God's will is done without any obstacle or resistance. It's a place where righteousness dwells. It's a world without sin and a world without evil, a world without tears, a world without pain, a world without sorrow, a world without death. It's a world where God's will for life and for good And for blessing, a will that has been clear ever since Genesis 1. And he creates a beautiful world teeming with life. It's where that will is is completely unobstructed and accomplished. It's a beautiful picture. And it's our blessed hope of where this world is headed. Yes, through the fires of judgment. But out the other side into the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is our great hope. This is the nature of the day that we look forward to as the people of God. So secondly, since this is the nature of the day, then how does this serve as a motivation for holiness? How does this strengthen our resolve to live lives that are holy? 
just give three things. First, it helps us to see and remember the end of sin and the world tainted by sin. That the end of these things are actually destruction. And recognizing that there is no future for them serves as a powerful disincentive in the present day to pursue anything contrary to God's will in our lives. When we're tempted to reject God and to run our own way in any area of life, and we're all tempted with with this in, in certain areas, then this firm picture of future judgment reminds us that any progress that we make along the way of the world is not really progress at all. It's really just a liability. That there's no future for those who win by the world's standards. The only future is destruction and judgment. So the question is, why would we play the game at all? Why would we get started? Why would we take two steps down that path? It's a bit like being told that there's going to be a wrecking ball smashing this one spot in your backyard in 30 days and then spending the next 30 days of your life building a beautiful deck in your backyard on that very spot. It just doesn't make any sense to build in that way. On this side of that great day, it's really easy for us to see, to envy those who have gone their own way and seem sometimes to have all the fun and get all the joy. This is what happens to the psalmist in Psalm 73, envying the wicked. And when we do envy them, we're prone to imitate those who go this way or the way of the world, to serve pleasure or money or power or intellect. But what awakens the psalmist in Psalm 73 is his realization of the end of the wicked. That it is judgment. That there is no future. The judgment that accompanies, that accompanies this is what we think about when we, real, when we put our hope during this Advent season upon Jesus' return. It's a disincentive in all of our lives for taking up lying and the gains that we can get by being dishonest or greed or self-centeredness or any kind of ungodliness. Because these things actually lead to nowhere. This future that we affirm in Advent teaches us that sin also is not trivial and that it's not a small matter. And this too steers us into the arms of of the living God. Now let me say, of course, this negative motivation which we get in 2 Peter 3, for fear of judgment or the reality of judgment, is not as powerful or as high, if you will, in terms of order of things, as the positive motivation for holiness that comes out of loving our Lord Jesus for his love that he's given to us. That's the first and primary motivation for living a holy life. But it's biblical, this motivation. Jesus uses this motivation. And it's important to say in the church from time to time, that we need to affirm that something that God uses in his word can be of use for us to hear as well. That this calls us in a different direction. The second way this can encourage us and move us is that it holds out with clarity the future of the world as a future where righteousness dwells. And by the clarity of this vision of the future, we're encouraged to live now in a manner that's consistent with what we know the world will one day become. So one way of thinking about our lives and our decisions on the day-to-day basis could be, does what I'm about to do have a place in God's future world? Does it fit with where the world is headed? Or does it belong to the old ways of this present age? 
As children of the light and children of the day, we're exhorted in a passage that we read yesterday, if you're following along with the Advent devotional at Church of the Cross in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're, we're exhorted to keep awake and be sober and not to do the things of the night. Instead, we're to live as those who belong already by virtue of belonging to Jesus, to that future world, to that daytime, to that world where righteousness dwells. And as that future, through our hope, stays clearly in our minds, this encourages us to live consistently with it. Third and finally, this encourages us to work hard in both of these directions. And I put working hard would be more of the bold here. Both in renouncing sin and running from it and in pursuing and embracing righteousness. Because it's sure. This future is sure and certain. And that's the declaration that Peter's making over and against the false teachers whose false teaching about the end not coming is leading them to moral licentiousness. Peter says, no, this is sure. Therefore, work hard. Strive. Be diligent. Perhaps it's no wonder that Paul ends his great argument in Romans with these words in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Somehow Paul knows that that this hope translates into effort to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. It's also a deeply personal thing that encourages us to work and to strive in this way. It says in verse 14 that we should be diligent to be found by him Remembering that the return, this great and final day, isn't just some kind of impersonal event, but it's the reality of our Lord Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again for our sakes, who's coming to meet us. And it says, work hard to be found by him without spot or without blemish. He's going to see you in that day. And let that be a motivation to strive and to use all the energy that you have to move in this direction toward righteousness and away from sin. And then the last thing on this working hard is is without spot or blemish. Notice that Peter basically encourages us to keep going to the fullest degree and intensity. That is, don't be settled. If there's a known spot in your life or a known blemish in your life, don't don't be content with just letting that remain, but continue to strive, continue to work, continue to work that out so that on the final day, there will be nothing that you feel that you need to hide. That's the encouragement. So in closing, all of this suggests that this is why we need the Advent season. When our hope is unclear or when it's denied as it was by the false teachers in 2 Peter, it's easy for us to get disillusioned. It's easy for us to take up the ways of the world. It's easy easy for us to lose focus or motivation. It might be good just to ask yourself, is this hope, is this great and final day something about which I think on a regular basis? And that's a question then to consider during the Advent season which seeks to take this hope that's always a central part of the Christian life and put it back on the pedestal, back in the spotlight. And as as we do that, as this hope begins to capture our imagination and, and, and be our focus, this future, it gives us every reason to reject sin, to embrace righteousness, and to spend ourselves with every ounce that we have 
in this work of living consistently with that future day. And we do this by grace. We do this by the one who has promised to complete the good work that he has begun in us. We don't do this in despair. We don't do this in shame. We do this in the freedom of repentance and forgiveness. We do this in the empowerment of the Spirit. And we do it with these words that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We live for that future day. We live for that future glory. And we scrap and we fight by the grace of God in the present day to receive something far greater on that future day. Live with this Advent hope at the center. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would fill us with your hope. That you would give us the perspective of this text. And that you would encourage us, Lord, to live in accordance with the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Thank you. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for your grace. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.